Hello and welcome back to the First Step Podcast, the podcast where we tackle philosophies, religions, in a digestible and hopefully entertainable format. In this series, we are tackling Buddhism, as you know from the previous episodes. Everyone can realize their Buddha nature. Buddha nature being the capacity everyone holds within them to be their own Buddha. Not meaning that you'll discover a new philosophy on life, rather be enlightened. Although some of you smart cookies out there may be able to do the former. This is achievable through the path to enlightenment the Buddha so kindly laid out, referred to as the middle path. To begin, I would like to introduce you to karma and its effects upon the clarity of our minds. Karma. We've all heard the term. We see instant karma as the man who stole your phone turns around, trips over his shoelace, and face plants into the street in front of him. To first understand. To first. And if you believe in reincarnation, we'll live better in the next life. Not all Buddhists must believe in karma, however, so I'll be brushing past the effects of karma in that sense. Moving on to the effects karma holds upon our life, it's most easily explainable through a metaphor. Say the mind was a pond filled with koi, koi representing clarity. Ponds are of course naturally still, peaceful, just as the koi-like. They're not always that way though. You throw a rock into a pond and the whole surface ripples outwards. You throw a boulder into a pond, and you alter that ecosystem dramatically. Then the fish get scared and go into a frenzy. It sinks to the bottom of the pond and remains there for eternity, as a hindrance to the koi, as they bump into it for their quest for food. This rock may be covered by sediments. However, it still leaves the koi less room to move freely. You fill a pond with rocks, and the koi no longer live. However, if a leaf falls into a pond, it's so inconsequential that the pond remains calm, the koi don't even notice. As time passes, the leaf decays and its elements become one with the pond, bettering the ecosystem for your koi. The larger the leaf, the better the benefit for your koi. And if you think about the leaf, you realize it's still in the pond, but you have to think of it by choice. Now imagine the rock is negative karma and the leaf is positive karma. While the fish attaining food is thought bettered through long-term benefits. The size of the rock or the leaf is relative to the karmic debt. One thing that may be off-putting is that negative karma remains forever. While bad deeds do remain in the mind forever, this is only a half-truth as well. Through dedication and skillful practice, even one with a pond full of only rocks may reverse the process. Let me explain further. This occurs when one has atoned for their negative karma so much, the negative is insignificant to the positive. One may create a still body of water over a large lump of rocks. With enough rain and leaves, one may create a pond so large the koi can move freely again, undisturbed by the rocks at the bottom. Hopefully that's helpful for you. Try it yourself one day. Maybe not under the pretense of enlightenment, but rather to achieve greater peace. However, this alone is a very small step, and a vague one at that. Good or bad varies depending on the person and their beliefs, while good or bad to a person with no idea of self is very unclear. How, then, are we supposed to be sure we're always intaking positive karma? 
Well, luckily, Big Man Cities got us covered with some basic principles to an ethical life. Thus a life where only leaves befall our pond. They're known as the five precepts, and a vow is undertaken as a commitment to the lifestyle. They go as follows. Now hand over your heart. I agree to never take a life no matter the size. Refrain from stealing or taking what is not freely given. Refrain from illicit sexual conduct, which further explained no affairs, sex with minors, or any other sex causing harm. Refrain from unskillful speech, lies, gossip, or speaking harshly, and abstinence of any mind-altering substances. Through these core teachings alone, you can attain a lot of peace. As you see, these things are along the lines of where most dukkha originates from. You can't worry about the bug guts on your finger, as you didn't squash it. You don't have to stress about your dad finding the project you didn't do, as he already knows. And you can't worry about your neighbor Randall busting in with the 12 gauge as you <clears throat> please his wife Myrtle, because you were never there. Who wants a girl named Myrtle anyways? Those crazy kooks deserve each other. Now the five precepts aren't the only set of guidelines the Buddha has offered. There's another, deemed the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is normally what the Buddha wants you to attain to achieve enlightenment, but these other teachings are more approachable and easily understood at first. The Eightfold Path does share a lot of similarities. The Eightfold Path shares a lot of similarities with the abstinations in the Five Precepts. That's because the Eightfold Path is the foundation of almost all methods of teaching the Buddha gave to his teachers. One does not work without the other. There are no shortcuts in the path to enlightenment. This would just make it some strange, psychedelic Mario Kart track. Not a path. So open up the mirrors for another scoop of knowledge. The Eightfold Path in order is right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindly, right mindfulness, and finally, right concentration. These are all great and all, but it seems rather vague with an odd fixation on the right-hand side. But obviously there's more to it than that. These are the general things you must practice to further the path of enlightenment. Cultivating your ethical conduct, mental discipline, and wisdom. Three things imperative of Buddhism. They are in no sequential order, and all must be practiced simultaneously on a daily basis for mental clarity. The first, right speech, is the same as the first precept. No lies, gossip, hate, or slander. Pretty simple stuff. Right action is to abstain from any and all harmful action. If it causes harm to anything, big or small, it's, uh, it's not going to fly, sir. Right livelihood is to not make a living out of anything that harms others. Whether that be selling mines to the U.S. military or owning a chicken farm, causing direct harm to others is a big taboo in Buddhism. <clears throat> the last three all had to do with ethical conduct. Well, the next three are all about mental discipline. Right effort is the active energy to let go of any evil states of mind, prevent any evil states of mind from arising, cultivate wholesome or good states of mind, and perfect these wholesome mindsets. Right mindfulness is to be aware of the activities of the body, sensations or feeling, activities of the mind, and any thoughts.
This is why many Buddhists meditate. Meditation is direct training of concentration and awareness. It also provides great practice to learn not to identify with these thoughts or feelings. A great help when letting go a sense of self. Right concentration is characterized by the activity of the dhyana, a four-stage process that sees all emotion let go and the goal that one achieves one-pointedness. One-pointedness being a quiet concentration impossible to disturb. Lastly, Buddhists wish to cultivate wisdom. Right thought is selfless detachment. To only cultivate thoughts of love and nonviolence. Right understanding is to understand all things as they are using the four noble truths. This is to avoid seeing things as they only appear to be. Like the cute girl on Tinder who sees that you're 5'11", then immediately blocks you. It's, it's just flat out ignorant. Then because of this ignorance, she gets her heart broken by some guy named Chad with surfer hair and a vengeance on all females. Or at least some of us like to daydream. Nonetheless, we never want to be ignorant. There are only two here as, you know, eight is not divisible by three. With regular practice of all these things, you see how one could achieve a peaceful life. And the five precepts, along with awareness of anatta, and the eightfold path can get you knocking on Nirvana's door. But what's a door with no key? Simply put, it's an end to your path. You may look around and think, there's got to be a key here somewhere. You look around and you just can't seem to find it. Why is it we did all this work simply to catch a glimpse of Nirvana? Well, the Buddhist says there are seven things we must realize before we ever find the key of Nirvana. Get ready for another vague list. This one's called the seven factors of enlightenment. They are mindfulness, investigation of the Dharma, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. For a change of pace, these seven installments are in sequential order. The first, mindfulness, is the same as on the Eightfold Path. To be mindful is to be aware. After mindfulness, one can commence the investigation of the Dharma, our second factor. This means to clearly investigate the world around you. After investigation, one learns the importance of energy, and not the type that fuels your little iPhone. Similar to right energy, one must truly apply themselves to the task at hand. Joy is making sure you enjoy the process of enlightenment. To, tru to truly be awakened, you mustn't feel contempt for the practice, or else you're not truly enlightened. you still got that emotion banging around that good old noggin of yours. Tranquility is holding peace and confidence within the path. Concentration, being able to focus all attention on the task at hand, not to be bothered by any distractions. Equanimity, the end of our seven, is holding a balanced mind. One that's able to balance all thoughts and remain clear. This is the most important part as it means you're well on your way to enlightenment. These seven factors are compulsory in the path to enlightenment. If you find yourself struggling with these along the way, further refining is needed. Since we've got a pretty good flora plan of all the things needed to advance the path, let's talk about some obstacles along the way. The most fundamental of obstacles that should be avoided at all costs are what's dubbed the three poisons. These are three evil virtues no Buddhist would ever dwell upon. These are greed, hatred, and ignorance. The Buddha said these poisons are what cause all of the world's problems. Even if you look around today, you'll see this to be fairly true. 
Some punk kid runs up on you, punches in the face. Some punk kid runs up on you, punches you in the face real apathetic-like, and steals your turkey sandwich. That man was ignorant to the fact that you too may need that sandwich to satisfy your hunger. Even World War II, the most recent global conflict, was caused by a deep-rooted hatred in Germany left in ruins after World War I. The Buddha says to never dwell upon these thoughts and instead nurture the three wholesome attitudes, generosity, loving-kindness, and wisdom. Buddhists also tend to run into the five hindrances upon their path to enlightenment. These five hindrances are sensual desire, ill will, sloth, restlessness, and doubt. Sensual desire refers to the desire for food, sex, possessions, and experiences. A mind clouded with only a mind clouded with only desires, not ready to grow. Ill will once again refer to the more poisonous states of mind, states like anger, jealousy, or greed. Sloth refers to a slow mind and a drowsy mind. A mind that wants to do little will accomplish just about that. Restlessness is a mind that is worried, anxious, and afraid. It's hard to grow when all you can do is think of failure. Doubt refers to distrust in the practice. A mind that is not open shall only repel teachings. All five hindrances must be dealt with. Any that show up frequently are a sign that the craft must be refined. And that is most of the important, say, metaphorical predators on our path to enlightenment. Just to be a never-ending nag, because I enjoy watching you suffer, I do have one more idea to be kept in mind as you follow this path. That idea is called the Doctrine of Two Truths. The Buddha said there are two ways of viewing things in the world, either relative view or absolute view. Relative viewing is based upon our preconceptions of the world, such as when we look at a car. We simply look at that and think, you know, hey, cool, car. If we were to look at that car with absolute view, it would be comparable to a child's point of view. They would see a thing composed of steel, glass, plastic, rubber, so on and so forth. This is also known as empty view. Empty in Buddhism meaning empty of all past experience, simply just what is present. You may think due to the Zen Zen always be present nature of Buddhism that absolute view is perceived as the only acceptable truth. But as the famous Buddhist monk Nagarjuna always But as the famous Buddhist monk Nagarjuna points out, the truth lies in the middle. Now, this is a less traditional teaching of Buddhism and is not accepted in the Theravada school, but it's accepted in almost all other schools. And I believe the Buddha would have agreed with young Nagar Huna. I, I really hope I'm saying that name right. Um, Nagar Huna says, the truth lies in the middle. Consider this relative to our understanding of samsara and nirvana. Once again, samsara being the endless cycle of birth, life and suffering, and then death. Nirvana being the salvation from that eternal peace. One could view nirvana and samsara as two entirely different places. That's a purely relative view, though. With absolute truth, nirvana and samsara are both the same thing, same place. It's simply just living life. When you combine both and form a middle truth, however, you get the whole picture. Samsara and nirvana are the same place. Someone who lives in samsara just hasn't realized nirvana yet. That's an absolute mind-blower and a half, but it's the truth. 
the absolute part is nirvana and samsara are the same thing, you know, just living life. The relative part is that someone can realize nirvana. One cannot truly distinguish nirvana from samsara as two different things unless they've experienced it, making it a conception of the mind, not an absolute truth. With this understanding of the two truths, that pretty much concludes our discussion of the path to enlightenment. I know this is a lot to throw at you all in one blurb, but the path to enlightenment isn't lit up overnight. As smart man John Wooden says, all good things take time, as they should. So calm the hell down. Good things don't happen overnight, you monkey. Now, I may have paraphrased a tad, but you get the gist. This podcast alone won't get you to nirvana. One must search for higher knowledge of Buddhism, whether that be through independent knowledge or through a spiritual teacher. If you decide you'd like to take the next step into Buddhism, you'll inevitably have to pick, as the kids say, a lane. To help you get better acquainted with the different schools of Buddhism, to help you get better acquainted with the different schools of Buddhism, tune into my next episode. And that's it for this episode, ladies and gents. For now, stay cool, calm, and curious. I'll see you in the next episode.